following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. course of meditation, we've been exploring what it means to communicate with divinity, with the divine, which, as we've been emphasizing, is not some anthropomorphic figure of an old man or a dignified lady in the clouds. Those are symbols in religion that teach us something psychological, something conscious, And we, in the science of meditation, seek to communicate directly with the presence, the intelligence that has been represented within those traditions, within statues or forms. So we began this practice by invoking the energy of what is known as the Divine Mother, the Divine Feminine, who is the feminine aspect of our inner divinity, our being, So when we say that God is being, we don't wish to point towards, again, anthropomorphism, but instead to principles, energies, forces we find in nature and within our own body, which we seek to actualize, to activate, to stimulate. In our process of Given these lectures, we've been talking a lot about working with the Divine Feminine, being able to communicate directly with that intelligence in a very concrete, specific manner. So when the different traditions of Judaism or Buddhism, Islam, speak about communicating face-to-face with the Buddhas, with the angels, with the gods, those are symbols of how we can speak face-to-face in our meditations with that divine presence, but also in the science of dream yoga in which our physical body goes to sleep and we as a consciousness enter the superior dimensions of nature, the dream world. But by working in meditation, we awaken from dreams so that as a consciousness, we can communicate with the divine in those dimensions which people typically 
theorize and believe is just a projection of the brain. But really, when someone awakens consciousness profoundly and ceases to dream in that state, one really gets to understand that there is a whole other world available to us, which meditation teaches us how to access. Because we as a consciousness, as a soul, must learn to receive that guidance, that wisdom from our inner divinity. Most people who approach religion, meditation, yoga, and when I say yoga, I mean real yoga, not just physical postures, but yug in Sanskrit, to unite as a consciousness with the truth. When people approach religion, they typically want to have some type of experience to know divinity directly for oneself, not based on any belief or theory, but on practice. We all have issues and problems that we suffer with, that we struggle with, and we look for some type of guidance in our politicians, our media, our religious figures, our temple, our church, our synagogue, our mosque. And yet we find that people cannot really show us or give us answers to the real profound root of our sufferings in a fundamental way. Because we may believe in one doctrine or not, and yet what we think doesn't matter. Because how we behave, how we act consciously determines our, our mind stream, our life. So neither by believing in some religion is how one is going to find the solutions to one's deepest sufferings, but meditation. And so to pray according to the founder of the Gnostic tradition, Samael and Vior, is to speak with divinity to have that connection, to interact as we are interacting here and now. Prayer, for most people, tends to be a very blind thing where we repeat a certain prayer in a mechanical way or some Hail Mary or the Our Father, thinking that by repeating mechanically, repetitiously, that somehow we're going to receive some insight. But the truth is that that type of prayer doesn't work. It's superficial. If we want to really talk with divinity, we have to be very specific in our methods and how we concentrate our mind, as we've been discussing in this course. To focus on one thing, a mantra, a sacred sound, an image, a sculpture, visualizing its details in our mind, focusing on that one specific thing without letting the mind wander, get distracted. Because if we sit to practice, we typically find that the mind wanders constantly. It thinks about other things. We daydream about what we're going to do later, where we've been, who we talked with. And yet, we may return to our practice 30 minutes later, realizing I'm supposed to be meditating. I'm supposed to be present. So that state of distraction shows us what we are psychologically moment by moment. Not when we just sit to close our eyes for half an hour or so 
but in our daily life. We're constantly thinking, being distracted by, by what we were going to do, where we've been, where we're going. And that distraction of the consciousness indicates that we are as a psyche or asleep. We're not present. We're not mindful. We're not aware of what we're doing, what we're, what we're saying, what we're thinking. Because if, if we're driving our car and thinking of our friend, our fiancé, our spouse, if we're at a lecture and yet we're thinking of other things, we're not really listening to what's going on, we're not really seeing where we're at, it means that we as a consciousness are asleep. The mind wanders. As we said in our previous lecture on the path of conscious judgment, the mind is a labyrinth, a maze, which the great hero, Theseus, goes into in order to find the beast, known as the Minotaur, a symbol of our own egotism, which, by learning to concentrate ourselves in meditation, we go into the mind. We cease being distracted. And we learn to get to the core root of our suffering, which is psychological. It's a conditioning, as we've been explaining. So the process of meditation is about, again, going into the mind, focusing the mind, being specific with our practice, being aware of what we're doing at all times. And when we learn to discipline our intellect, concentrate ourselves to be focused, moment by moment, day by day, in every circumstance of life, we find that the practice of meditation opens up spontaneously. So if you find that you're distracted, you may have a certain longing to know God, the being, the divine. And we have go through certain prayers or rituals or practices. But if we're not mindful of what we're doing, it means that we're not going to have the results we want. Because to receive that insight from the divine means the mind has to be calm. We have to be concentrated in what we're doing. So the very beginning of meditative practice, the path of prayer, of communicating with the divine, occurs when the mind is in silence, when it's focused, when we command our attention to do one thing at the exclusion of everything else. And we don't let our mind wander. We don't waver. We don't begin a prayer in our practice and then forget what we're doing and then realize, I should have been reciting this prayer or this practice, and then we remember. So that's the beginning of any person who starts meditation. Because we see that the mind needs to be controlled, needs to be harnessed. But we find that when the mind is calm and serene, we can start to receive knowledge, insight. And this usually comes in the form of some type of uh, spiritual experience. As I said, you can awaken in dreams by learning to meditate, in which you as a consciousness with a mind that is calm can say and invoke your inner God, your inner goddess, and say, my God, help me, teach me. Because prayer, when it is focused with intention, and then we wait, that's when we receive insight. That's when the communication happens. Because most people think that by reciting a hundred Hail Marys or, or Hare Krishna or whatever a thousand times that you're going to get some kind of result. The truth is that you can't if your mind is mechanical. If we just repeat things 
We just think things, we feel things without any real knowledge or observance, no attention. And so this lecture we called Conscious Prayer because in order to have that communication with your being, you have to be conscious of what you're doing. And as I said earlier, the path of meditation begins when we learn to concentrate. So in this exercise, we were invoking the energy of the Divine Mother with the mantra, ram i o We learn to focus on that mantra, to pronounce it, to immerse ourselves in the vibrations of that sound so that that energy saturates the consciousness, awakens it, develops our hidden potential. And in that way, when you have energy, as we've been talking in this course and the Light of Consciousness lecture, when you have energy applied to action, then you can get results. If the mind's not calm, if the lake of the intellect is churning with negativity, with anguish, with preoccupations about our job, not really focusing on what we need to focus on in our practice, it means that the images of the heavens cannot reflect in that lake. Your mind is a lake, but we typically tend to throw things into it, stones, garbage, or whatever metaphor we want to use, negativity. And that mind that's agitated, churning, can help us to focus. We sit to practice and then suddenly the mind, we look into the mind, we see that we're filled with a lot of memories and anguish and suffering. And when people realize this at the beginning of meditation, they typically tend to run away because they realize how monstrous the mind is. It's so chaotic. And you realize or think, this practice is harming me. But the truth is we're just becoming aware of what's going on moment by moment, day by day. We're just not conscious of it. And to help us with this process of learning to become conscious of our daily life, we learn to pray. It means to be focused and to be sincere, to be concentrated. If we, again, pronounce Hare Krishna multiple times, but we're not really invested with our heart, our longing to know the divine, and our concentration, there won't be any results. We can speak all we want, but the answer won't come directly. So calm the mind is the beginning. The mind needs to be stable. We need to be concentrated. And in that way, the truth emerges spontaneously within our consciousness. So we've pictured here the Hindu representation of the Divine Mother, known as Durga. There are many other forms of the Divine Feminine, such as Kali. And as we mentioned earlier, this Divine Feminine has been represented by Athena amongst the Greeks, Miriam, Mary amongst the Hebrews, and amongst the Christians. It's interesting that you look at the word Miriam in Hebrew, which means to raise, to elevate. Because the Divine Mother, your inner goddess, is the one who can elevate you from psychological conditions and sufferings into the heights of the, the divine, the spiritual. And I personally, if I'm teaching you this, it's because this is something I have been working with for many years, where I've had experiences in the dream world where I've been receiving insight from my inner goddess, who's been helping me so that I can be of help to others. In dreams, this divine feminine can take form. So I said that the divine is formless. 
but is an energy, is a principle, is a force. That energy can materialize in the dream world in any symbol, any form, in order to teach you something psychologically about yourself. And in that way, when you're presented with the symbol, when you're asking your inner goddess, my God or my being, help me, teach me what I need to know. You're meditating, you're focusing on that one question, you fall asleep, you wait. And then spontaneously your consciousness can awaken in that state in which you ask that question again, my God, help me, show me what I need to know about myself, about this problem that I'm going through, what I need to do, what I need to change. And then the answer will come in a symbol. It'll come in some type of living drama because the world of dreams, the astral plane, is a symbolic language, a symbolic world. Your Divine Mother will come to you in any form that's going to be concrete and conducive for teaching you something. Remember, for one instance, I um, invoked my Divine Mother in the world of dreams. And she... I asked her the question, please help me to understand what I need to work on, what I need to do. She appeared. She came around, I was on, outside my house in the dream world because in the astral plane, the dimension, we see everything that we see physically, but with differences. It's a different dimension, a different type of materiality that's not physical. She came to me in a figure of a bear. And in a spiritual studies, we know that the bear is a symbol of uh, egotism, of animalism, of desire, of defects, and of the secret psychological enemies we carry within that are fighting against this type of work, as we've been talking about with many other myths in this course. So she came to me with a radar in her hands that was showing that laser beam, or that beam that goes in a circle so that you can find some kind of blip or dot of some type of aircraft that's present. And it was blank. And she said to me, I can't find you. And I woke up. I was really filled with a lot of remorse because she was showing me, I am trying to awaken your consciousness and you keep forgetting me. You keep forgetting my presence because your divine mother is with you here and now. You don't need to have some type of samadhi or mystical experience out of the body to, have, to really actualize the presence of your inner goddess within you. So she came to me, fortunately, in a dream to show me, I'm looking at my radar and I don't see you. Meaning you're not paying attention. You're not awake. You're not concentrated in me, in your daily life. So in my daily life, I've been getting too distracted, forgetting my own consciousness, getting caught up in daydreaming and worries and thoughts and not being focused about where I'm at. So that's an example of conscious prayer, whereby silencing the mind, you meditate, go out of the body in the dream state, and then you ask the question, show me what I need to know. And oftentimes, through discipline, your divine mother will come to you in a way that is unexpected, where you may not even be able to get the question out of your mouth, and suddenly the answer, she'll show up and come to you, which is why Dante in his Divine Comedy stated that uh, the Divine Mother, or Virgin Mary, often provides the answer before we even ask it. Because she is the power of love, of compassion, within the depths of our psyche. And so uh, we, in these studies, learn to actualize that presence in different ways. Specifically through what we call four types of yoga. 
So the word yoga, as I said, comes from the Sanskrit yug, to unite. So when you learn to communicate with your inner god, your inner goddess, face to face, you're, you're performing union because you're receiving the direct insight you long for. But let's remember that the term yoga as it's used today really has no meaning. People think that yoga is contorting the body, twisting it, or making it thin so that one can attract the lust of other people. But instead, real yoga is fourfold. We have karma yoga, relating to action, service. We have bhakti yoga, relating to devotion, the heart. We have raja yoga, relating to powers, abilities, psychic capacities. And we have jnana yoga, relating to knowledge. So this lecture will talk specifically about bhakti, devotion, and what it really means. But you, we can't explain bhakti yoga without talking about the other constituents of spiritual practice. Karma yoga relates to how you use your body in a more superficial sense. How do we act with our physical body in daily life? Do we do so working at our job to benefit others? Or do we use our body in ways that is selfish, where we're concerned more about our own welfare? How do we act? How do we behave? How do we think? How do we feel? And how do we express what is internal? As we've been talking about in these lectures, we talked that psychologically we carry many egotistical elements. We call ego, I, me, myself, anger, pride, fear, vanity, lust, a whole conglomeration of defects which are shells, conditions, which trap our full potential, which trap the consciousness, and which in religions have been represented as demons, because these senses of self these desires are really demonic. They don't want to help others. Anger does not want to help others. It wants to destroy. Likewise, with fear, it debilitates. Many elements that drag us down into states of suffering. Those have been represented by monsters and figures in different religions, different traditions, different myths. And so we have to examine our mind, our mind stream. What do we carry within? What is going on psychologically that makes us act in daily life? How do we behave towards others in life? Are we thinking about ourselves or do we really think about the benefit of others? Now, it's important that one learn to understand one's psychological state because... Our psychological states shape our life. What we are psychologically determines how we act, what we say. What we think determines how we behave. And energetically, when we learn to awaken our consciousness, we see that even our thoughts influence others. Because it's a form of energy. It's a form of matter. And it influences people. There's an interaction that is psychological, that is psychic. That relates to Raja Yoga. But Raja Yoga is actually much more profound than just psychic powers but involves many things that we're going to talk about. So karma, how do we act? And in these studies, if we really want to learn how to meditate, we have to learn what 
shapes and conditions us, which makes us suffer. But more importantly, how do we make others suffer with our egotism, our sense of self? When you learn to understand how anger is a destructive element, is an animal that needs to stop being fed, then you begin to experience what all the Greek myths have taught about as the great heroes fighting against the monster, the Medusa, the Minotaur, the Kraken, symbols of our own defects. But when you learn to restrain the mind in a moment of anger, we learn to comprehend in ourselves, we look inside and we see that a certain element is arising in us that wants to act negatively. But we don't feed that element, we restrain ourselves because we know that that element will harm the other person. If we speak what, we, what that element wants to speak, that ego, that sense of self, when you restrain the mind, you empower your consciousness. And in those moments of great anger, you can invoke your Divine Mother. You, you simply pray, my, my Goddess, help me to understand this anger that is boiling in me. And sometimes it could require us stepping away from the person. Other times we may have transformation where we realize and comprehend that we are not that anger. And then we can learn to respond with love. Instead of responding with anger, we serve the other person. We serve divinity in the other person because all people have God within. Therefore, we shouldn't disrespect anyone, psychologically, mentally, physically. And when you learn to restrain the mind and act in positive ways, you're performing a form of bhakti, of religion. Because religion come from the Latin religare, means to reunite, to bring people together, and also to unite the soul with God, the being. When you speak words of compassion towards your aggressor, towards someone who dislikes you, who treats you with disrespect, instead of reacting with anger, we see that element arise and we, we, we don't act on it. We choose conscious action. We serve the other person. And Samael Vior, the founder of this tradition, states that one must learn to kiss the whip of the executioner to kindly receive the unpleasant manifestations of our fellow men and women. Because we have to understand that those people who are angry are suffering. We should not treat them with disrespect or, or anger, but with patience. And in that way, we're performing karma yoga. We're also showing devotion because we're showing that we don't want to harm the other person, even in our thoughts. We show bhakti. We're showing that we want to perform religion, reunite people, not separate. And so bhakti yoga is how we devote ourselves in every, every action of our life with consciousness, with awareness. Jnana yoga relates to knowledge of the intellect, to study to studying and having a certain knowledge of scripture and religion and teachings, psychology, whatever lectures we receive, in order to help inspire us. And also to train the mind to know the path and the steps, the principles of how to change, of how to practice meditation. Bhakti, as I said, relates to devotion to the heart, your emotional qualities, your psychological states. Notice we have in the lower three frames of yoga, karma yoga relating to your body, bhakti yoga relating to your heart, jnana yoga relating to your intellect. In, in Gnostic psychology, we call this the three brains. 
You have a center for intellect, the thought, the mind, where thoughts emerge, where thoughts originate, which is not a physical brain, but a psychological center, which the physical brain channels thought, because the soul is inhabiting the body like a car, like someone's driving it. And the mind is a form of uh, a vehicle, a brain, a machine. It processes certain energies which exist physically but also psychologically. We have an emotional brain relating to sentiment, hate, love, passion, desire, which relates to the physical heart and its nervous systems, but also to the energies of emotion, which is different from the intellect. But that's something we learn to distinguish through meditation. And then the body, represented by the entire spine, is the motor instinctive sexual brain, where we process movement, instincts, and our sexual impulses. Karma yoga relates to the body. Bhakti yoga relates to the heart. Jnana yoga relates to the mind. Raja yoga is the balancing of all three. Raja means royal yoga. It is regal yoga. Meaning by learning to silence the mind, calm the heart, control the body, calm the body, we activate certain powers of the consciousness that make one into a king or a queen of oneself. So karma yoga, we typically say, is associated with performing good action to benefit others so that in some way we benefit ourselves. So as the Dalai Lama stated, if one can't really be selfless, at least be wisely selfish, meaning not to harm the other person, at least don't harm the other person, but at the same time, when you do that, you're doing that so that the person doesn't yell back at you because that perpetuates suffering, makes us suffer. At a more profound level, we learn to be selfless in our actions when we learn to comprehend our defects and to make conscious choices, to not act upon fear or resentment or pride. In that way, we radiate naturally spontaneous joy for others, peace. And that benefits humanity. That's a form of service, sacrifice. We sacrifice our desires so that we can benefit others. This is the symbol of Jesus on the cross, where he was crucifying his own animal ego, his mind. And of course, that's a very painful process because we're very attached to our body, our emotions, our intellect. But he showed a profound will and love in those moments of being nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Because you're speaking from the consciousness. And so Raja Yoga is when you learn to silence the mind, calm the heart, calm the body. So that when you sit to meditate, the heart opens naturally. And then we can begin to concentrate on a specific question we have, a practice we want to fulfill, so that we can get insight. So this is Swami Shivananda, great yogi, great master. He wrote in Easy Steps to Yoga some explanations about what devotion really is, its importance. And people who typically read these type of writings, they become inspired. But some people also look at it very superficially and don't really understand that bhakti, devotion, doesn't just occur when we go to puja, 
perform japa, mantra recitation, perform certain rituals, but we show bhakti and devotion with every interaction of life. As the Dalai Lama stated, or was asked the question, what inspires you most? He said, every person I come into contact with. Because other people show him or show us ourselves. He explains that bhakti is the basis of religious life. Devotion or bhakti destroys vasanas and egoism. So vasana is latent animalistic tendencies in the mind. And so how does bhakti destroy vasana? As I said, you're at your job, your boss criticizes you, or you have a conflict with a difficult client, and they're provoking your anger. And then in the moment you realize how destructive that element is, those thoughts of revenge, of resentment, of pain, that its actions will cause harm and perpetuate suffering for us and for others. We restrain from the mind and we learn to speak with love. Not forced, not veiled, but spontaneously. And that's something that comes to us with training. And intuitively, when when the mind is silent, you relax, you're paying attention to where you're at. And then you learn to say the right thing, do the right thing, think the right thing at the right time. That's inner judgment, as we've been talking about previously. So that's how you destroy egoism, is that you stop feeding the ego. You perform bhakti, devotion, worshipping the other god and the, the god of that other person who is criticizing you and saying in mentally, I respect the divine within all beings even within an ant or a criminal. All beings have God within. The reason why the criminal acts as he or she does is because they're ignorant. And therefore, they don't deserve my anger. They deserve my compassion. You don't have to formulate this in your mind when you're having a conflict. You just, the insight emerges and you, you realize the person's suffering. So why feel anger? And then you transform your own mind. And by acting with kindness, we transform the situation. A life without bhakti, faith, love, and devotion is a dreary waste. So what is faith? In our Gnostic studies, we state that faith is conscious knowledge, not belief. To believe that something is true or false is irrelevant. To think that something is true or not doesn't mean anything. Instead, faith is when you know something from experience, personally like having a conversation with your inner divine mother in the astral plane. So real bhakti is faith. Your heart becomes inflamed when you are communicating with your inner God. And to not have that is to be a dreary waste. People who never discover that is, uh, is a tragedy. Bhakti softens the heart and removes jealousy, hatred, lust, anger, egoism, pride, and arrogance. It infuses joy, divine ecstasy, bliss, peace, and knowledge. So what is ecstasy? Coming from the Latin extatuo, to stand outside oneself. People often think that ecstasy as a spiritual experience means to be in some type of out-of-body experience, as I mentioned. But you experience moments of standing outside of yourself when you learn to comprehend that you are not fear that you're not those negative elements that make us suffer, but instead you're something divine, consciously speaking, 
you step outside of yourself and you have a moment of perspective in which you see your subjective self and your objective self. And how you choose between the two determines your religious life, your spiritual life. All cares, worries, anxieties, fears, mental torments, and tribulations entirely vanish. The devotee is freed from the samsaric wheel of births and deaths. So in Buddhism and Hinduism, samsara means cyclical existence, which people typically interpret to refer to the multidimensionality of nature and its different levels and forms, which we've discussed in relation to Kabbalah. But samsara literally means cycling, repeating, habits. So we learn to identify our negative habits and change them. We perform cessation of those causes of repetitive behaviors that produce suffering. Cessation in Sanskrit is nirvana. So it isn't just a place, but a psychological way of being in which you cease repeating behaviors that are detrimental for oneself. And through bhakti, he attains the immortal abode of everlasting peace, bliss, and knowledge. So that everlasting abode, that immortal abode, is not some other world in which some utopian existence is experienced. It's not by going to the astral plane or the mental plane or nirvana or the different dimensions that we talked about in the tree of life that one is going to find absolute peace. Because all those dimensions are here and now. With us. Our center of gravity tends to be in this physical body. But psychologically, we have mind, emotion, energy, which are different levels of matter and experience that we're going to talk about in relation to Kabbalah, the tree of life. All those aspects integrate within us, the here and now. But that abode is not something foreign to you, but it's within your being, who is with you. And so how do we experience and know that immortal abode? It's through remembrance of the divine. It is by being watchful, by learning to pay attention. We have an image of a Sufi in, in meditation and prayer who has in his right hand what some would call a rosary in the Christian tradition, which traditionally, uh, whether in Hinduism, performing japa, you have certain beads. You count the beads while reciting a mantra for each bead in order to train the mind. So as we mentioned in the practice at the beginning of this lecture, we repeat a mantra in order to protect the mind, to train it, to cease being negative. Mantra means mind protection. And so japa is when you are reciting a prayer in your mind, but not mechanically, consciously, with force, with devotion. And we have many mantras in our tradition, but also in many other religions. Amongst the Sufis, it is Allahu Allah. Amongst the Hindus, we have Hare Krishna and many other prayers, which are really effective, but if you repeat them mechanically, they're useless. You have to be conscious of what you're doing. And sometimes we train, in ancient traditions, they would train themselves reciting those prayers by counting beads, repeating again and again a mantra to remember the presence of the divinity within, to invoke energy in the mind, the heart, the body. But the best act of worship 
of prayer is watchfulness. Watchfulness of the moment. It isn't by going to some spiritual place, going to Tibet, going to a, a church or a mosque in which one is going to find communion with the divine. You find divinity by being watchful. The physical place doesn't matter so much. So the best act of worship is when you are paying attention, self-observing. We discussed in our previous lectures about the path of self-observation in which you as a consciousness are observing your three brains, your thoughts, your feelings, your body. Observing the impulses of the mind, the instincts, our sexual drives, our thoughts, our emotions. We become mindful. We observe ourselves like we are watching an actor in a film and that we are the director. And so this watchfulness, when you're paying attention, is precisely the greatest prayer we can enact. Because if you're not aware as a consciousness, you cannot know divinity. You cannot perceive divinity here and now. Like I said in that experience, my Divine Mother says, you're lost. Where are you? And I felt panic because she was showing me that you're not worshiping me. You're not remembering me. And how do you remember divinity? When you're provoked with anger or negative elements and then you realize what to do, how to act, how to behave. Not only just physically, but mentally. You make choices. You have insight. Instead of responding with resentment or revenge, you transform the situation with love. This is the meaning of the following statement. That is, the servant not look beyond his limit, not contemplate anything other than his Lord, and not associate with anything other than his present moment. So what does it mean to not, that the servant not look beyond his limit? So when we perform bhakti yoga, we are serving divinity. We're also performing karma yoga, positive action. When we don't look beyond our limit, it means don't think about other things. Don't worry about other things. Be fully concentrated in what we are doing. Because to be distracted in a moment of crisis is, can produce a tragedy. As Samuel and Villar stated in the Revolutionary Psychology, people who don't know how to transform negative internal psychological states become victims of circumstances. And even a simple mistake or moment can bring one disgrace. So, don't look beyond your limit. Don't think about other things. Don't associate with anything other than the present moment. Don't think about anything other than your being. Be aware of your, your inner God. And that's a quality that you learn to become familiar with with practice. So in the beginning, we feel we're blind. We lack insight. We want to know divinity. We want to have some type of experience. We feel some longing, some inspiration. And people say, I can't meditate. I can't have an out-of-body experience. I haven't seen these things for myself. And many people get filled with despair. They write to us. And one thing I always mention to them is that, well, what are your longings? What do you feel? And they say, I feel in my heart that this knowledge is very true and I've been experiencing certain things. Okay, 
that's the next, next step. Follow your longing, that intuition, that judgment, that inner hunch in your heart. And the more you feed that, that, inf- that spark will grow into a flame as you train yourself in meditation. That's mindfulness. Because I remember personally many years ago when I, f- before I found this knowledge, I was looking and looking and looking and not being satisfied with what I was finding. And then I realized what I was looking for was already within me. So mindfulness is the key. That is the greatest form of worship because your body is a temple of God. The mind, the heart can become a temple of the being if we purify it. So in those moments of great crisis, moral and emotional suffering, when we learn not to look beyond our limit, meaning don't wish for the situation to change, but actually change it. Or if you can't change it, at least be conscious. Because some situations we can't change. People are going to be what they're going to be. And sometimes you can't make those changes in them. So instead, what you have to do is not harm them. And that, of course, becomes very difficult. Like Odysseus, in the symbol of uh, the Odyssey, was tied to a, a ship mast when he was sailing next to the sirens. It's a symbol that relates to this teaching where the sirens were calling him and he was driven mad with passion, with frenzy, or even anger, wanting to, be, to jump overboard or sail the ship into the reefs and become shipwrecked. It's a symbol of how in those great moments of suffering and crisis, we have to tie ourselves to our mast control our mind, use our will. And even though we're tempted by those different uh, defects or egos or wills, as we've been discussing in this course, we learn to be firm, to be mindful. And that's a form of worship. Be mindful of what you're doing. Be awake. Don't daydream. And when you learn to be in the present moment, you become conscious of the path itself. We use this glyph to talk about the intersection of the line of life with the line of being. The line of life is simply our existence. From our birth in the past to our childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, old age, sickness, death, towards the future. The line of life is mechanical. Everybody experiences this. People go through life typically identified with their name, their language, their culture, their customs, their beliefs, their religion, their concepts, their philosophy, their politics. And yet, when those people go to the grave, those things don't go with them. So that type of mentality that only believes that materialism is the only tangible, experiential thing are really mistaken because we do have something intersecting with that line of life which has to do with the line of being, our level of consciousness. Above, we have superior levels of consciousness which is represented by Jacob's ladder in the Bible in which the angels were ascending and descending in this vision that Jacob had in the book of Genesis. As above, there are heavenly states of consciousness inhabited by beings like angels and prophets. You also have inferior states of consciousness relating to negative ways of being, known as the hell realms. 
which again are symbols of something psychological. There are places too, but what's important is to realize our psychological state, because what we are psychologically determines where in nature we gravitate. So we're filled with envy and lust and pride. We naturally gravitate towards inferior states of being, the hell realms, which is experienced in nightmares and dreams. But there are also heavenly states of being, heavenly states of consciousness. So people who typically go through life totally not paying attention of where they're at, where they're going, what they're thinking. Most people only relate external things, which is the mechanical line of life. But someone who learns to awaken consciousness in meditation ascends the vertical path, moment by moment, instant by instant. That is the path of remembrance of divinity. When instead of responding with conditions of mind, we react, or better said, respond with cognizance, with light. Knowledge belongs to the line of life because intellectual knowledge, knowing how to have a job, a career, a business, is necessary, but it's not everything. Comprehension is something much more profound and is what concerns any person who studies meditation. Knowledge and comprehension are different. Knowledge is of the mind. Comprehension is of the heart. So what is comprehension? We know on a very basic level, when you put your hand on a hot stove, you get burned. And then you realize not to repeat that action. It's a very superficial form of comprehension. But real comprehension is when you understand the conditioning of the psyche, and then you don't act on those elements. You comprehend how lust, how fear, how hatred is negative. And when you really comprehend how those elements are destructive, you resolve not to go back to them and not to perpetuate your suffering and, other, and making other people suffer too. So comprehension is real prayer. Because when you comprehend your situation, whatever circumstances of life present itself and how the mind is the source of suffering, we then dedicate ourselves to changing fundamentally it's a form of a profound form of prayer. Is that the as well, or is that uh, it does relate to the cross, which is the crossing of four elements, but also the cross of uh, the present moment. Because when Christ was crucified, a, he came to physically represent or symbolize something psychological too. Because the death of the animal mind of egotism is in the present moment, here and now. And also the rebirth or resurrection or experience of the divine happens on the cross in the present moment. But also there's a more deeper significance, as you know. So we'll talk about a few excerpts from the Bhagavad Gita, which teach us something profound about the nature of bhakti yoga, of conscious prayer. So in the myth or in this scripture, the Lord Krishna comes to Arjuna, who is a representation of the Christic energy. So Christ is not a person, but a force, symbolized by the Greek Christos, meaning fire. That fire manifests within many prophets or masters who come to teach humanity something profound. So Krishna was an embodiment of that light and represents that divine energy. And Arjuna is us and our fundamental depth. 
willpower, human soul, human consciousness. And if you remember in the Mahabharata, from which the Bhagavad Gita is taken, Arjuna is in despair because he is told by Krishna that he has to go to war against his family, his family members, his relatives. This is the same symbol that we talked about in the book of Judges previously in the lecture Conscious Judgment where the people of Israel symbolizing the forces of the soul have to go against the ego, the armies of Sisera. So there's a great battle that emerges in the soul when we begin this path because our animalistic, egotistical elements don't want to die. And so they fight for their life. And so when Arjuna sees the, the vast armies of his former companions, his relatives, who are against him, he feels despair. And who are those relatives? Fear, laziness, lust, pride, everything we're familiar with that we typically associate with ourselves. And then when we go against that, we realize that is a big battle about to happen. And of course, Arjuna feels despair. He's despondent. But that's when Krishna comes and teaches him what he needs to do in order to overcome his own mind. So he explains the path of bhakti yoga very beautifully in this um, chapter on the yoga of devotion where he teaches him how to consciously pray to receive help. Arjuna said, those devotees who ever steadfast in meditation and those also who worship the imperishable and the unmanifested, which of them are better versed in yoga? Again, meaning union of the soul with the divine. The blessed Lord Christ through Krishna said, those who fixing their minds on me, worship me, ever steadfast in meditation and endowed with supreme faith, experience of the truth, these are the best in yoga in my opinion. So what does it mean to fix one's mind on the divine? It means to concentrate to not think about other things. And that is how you worship the divine. You receive insight. And to be steadfast means to be consistent, meaning to adopt meditation and to practice it daily for it to have real effect. Those who worship the imperishable, the indefinable, the unmanifested, the omnipresent, the unthinkable, the eternal and the immovable, having restrained all the senses, even minded everywhere, intent on the welfare of all beings, Verily, they also come unto me. So we mentioned previously in our lectures in this course about the eightfold path of yoga taught by Patanjali, known as Ashtanga, meaning eight-limbed form of yoga. We have discussed these steps in depth. The first is yama, meaning restraint of mind. As we've been discussing in this lecture, one learns to restrain negative habits, egotism, desires. That's the first step of yoga. People who give in to their egotism, their desires, their anger, can never meditate because the mind becomes a chaos. And when you invest your energy into the ego, you feed the ego, make it fat. So the first step of yoga is restraint. Restrain the mind. And by restraining the mind, we learn to follow niyama, meaning precepts. Precepts has to do with codes of conduct, virtues. 
which every religion stipulates in their own way. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't fornicate, don't commit adultery. These are not rules to repress people, but they teach us psychologically how to save energy, how to awaken consciousness. The next step is asana, your posture. As we said in our opening practice, your asana, your posture, should be firm but relaxed. The body can't relax if the mind and the heart are in chaos or agitated. If one wants to learn how to calm the body, the mind has to be calm. Meaning don't feed desire. You feed desire, feed the ego, which is synonymous. The mind can't settle. Because in a moment of anger, we, we uh, lose energy. Or in a moment of lust, we lose energy. And that energy which can be used for conscious development is lost. When the body is calm, you can begin practices of pranayama or work with mantra, energy. Pranayama means to yoke the prana, the energies of the body and the, and the mind and the heart and our sexuality. When you control your breathing with mantras or with certain interchangeable nostril breathing exercises, you learn to circulate energy so that the mind settles. So the practice we did at the beginning of this lecture, the mantra Ramyo, helps to channel energy and, and focus it in the mind and the heart. And then when those energies are present, we learn to restrain our senses. The senses become calm. This is known as pratyahara. Pratyahara is when you restrain the senses, where you're focused fully within yourself, you begin to settle, you become calm. Pratyahara is like a lever that can produce the other steps of meditation. They're fundamental. So these are things that we can't skip. They're not rules like something dogmatic to follow, but they're principles to apply consciously. With restraining your senses, you don't get distracted by what's going on outside in the neighbor's house, the sounds that one hears. The mind becomes calm. That's when one becomes even-minded, concentrated, as stated in the fourth verse of this scripture. To be even-minded is to be concentrated, to be serene. Meaning whatever you're doing, do it with full attention. Don't think about other things. Don't get distracted. With concentration, we learn to focus on one object of, of our focus for our practice in order to experience dhyana, meaning meditation. Dharana is concentration. Dhyana is actual meditation. We state that meditation is not a practice. It's a state of being in which you receive knowledge. So that experience I mentioned to you where I was talking to my Divine Mother, there was a form of meditation, but in the astral plane, where I was receiving knowledge from my inner goddess. And in that moment, I understood, comprehended something profound about my dilemma. That's samadhi, the next step, the eighth and final step which is comprehension, understanding. Samadhi is when you comprehend something profoundly without the influence of the mind, of the intellect, of the ego. So notice that the Bhagavad Gita teaches these steps of yoga in its verses. If you wish to know and worship the divine through prayer, one must be steadfast in one's discipline. Fix one's mind on that presence, 
which is not a physical entity, but a force, a state of consciousness, a way of being. And by learning to meditate or being concentrated all day, when you sit to practice, your mind is easily focused on one thing. You don't get distracted. You don't think about other things. You don't get lost in daydreams or worries. Because people who sit to practice for 10 minutes and who are distracted all day don't get anywhere. But if you're concentrated in what you're doing at all moments of life, your life becomes your, your religion, your, your discipline, your practice. So notice that we have the two armies presented before Krishna and Arjuna. So it's obviously a very difficult thing to, to know in oneself, to confront. That we have many egos and, and defects that need to be comprehended and eliminated. So in the path of conscious judgment, we talked extensively about comprehension, how to comprehend the mind, how to comprehend the ego. The next step is learning to pray, to receive help, a superior force from our inner goddess, to aid us in those moments of great crisis and battle, when moment by moment we're learning to face certain challenges and ordeals, certain situations that provoke elements that we never even suspected that we had. And by learning to be observant, we catch them. We catch those defects in action. That's discovery. And then when we learn to meditate on our faults, we learn to judge them. And by comprehending them, we pray to our Divine Mother to eliminate. And we'll be talking about this process towards the end of this lecture. But of course, this produces a great struggle in oneself. Trying to comprehend the mind produces great uh, suffering. Because we recognize morally that we are responsible for all of our sufferings and faults, which are very overwhelming to face in the beginning, especially. Which is why the Bhagavad Gita states, greater is their trouble whose minds are set on the unmanifested. For the goal, the unmanifested, the divine, is very difficult for the embodied to reach. But to those who worship me, who are mindful, who are awake, moment by moment, renouncing all actions in me, Regarding me as the supreme goal, meditating on me with single-minded yoga, concentration, to those whose minds are set on me or Arjuna, verily I become ere long the savior out of the ocean of the mortal samsara. So what does it mean to renounce all actions in me, in the divine? This is known as self-remembrance in our tradition. To remember the presence of your inner God in those moments particularly in which one is being challenged, confronted, criticized, lied about, gossiped, even attacked. You renounce all actions in, in the divine when you don't act egotistically, but remember the light of your presence, your inner God, who comes to you like a light, an insight, an understanding in your mind and your heart. And you learn to act on that impulse when it arrives, spontaneously, intuitively, Fix thy mind on me only, thy intellect in me. And the word intellect in Sanskrit is buddhi, which is a representation of the consciousness. So when we think of intellect, we typically think of thought. So this is a bad translation. The original is buddhi, which we're going to talk about in the next slide. Buddhi is the, the divine consciousness, dibura, judgment. So fix thy intellect in me, then thou shalt no doubt live in me alone hereafter. 
If thou art unable to fix thy mind steadily on me, then by the yoga of constant practice do thou seek to reach me, O Arjuna. Meaning if your mind is still wandering, you're not able to concentrate, train yourself daily with simple practices. Take a candle or take an object to focus on, like a, a, like, a, like a lit flame, and observe it. And as you're observing, observe your mind. Observe what you are observing, but also be aware of what you're, how you are seeing or perceiving. And if your mind starts thinking about other things, just gently bring your attention back to the candle. And that will train you how to cease being distracted moment by moment. And that can help empower your consciousness. That's, that's part of some preliminary exercises one engages with when one prepares for meditation itself. So by the yoga of constant practice, one can reach the divine. Because consistency is key. So we were talking about the Kabbalistic tree of life in our previous lectures. This image, known in the, the book of Genesis as the tree of life, is a symbol, a map of consciousness. These are different levels of perception of matter and energy. And we've been talking extensively about these different degrees or sephiroth modalities of being in order to understand how to meditate. So in our practice, we talked about the body known as Malkut in Hebrew, represented as the kingdom. This is where we are. But of course, above that are higher levels or modalities of energy and perception, which are not vertically situated in space, but instead represent levels of being, ways of consciousness, ways of perceiving. We have Yasod relating to our vital energies, our creative energies, our sexual energy itself, which can give life to spiritual life or even to a physical child, depending on how we use that energy, which is very well known in Buddhism as Tantra and Hinduism as well. We have the emotional sphere relating to Hod, meaning splendor. This is the emotions or astral body, the world of dreams. Yasod means foundation foundation of our spiritual temple because how we use creative energy determines our spiritual life an energy that we activate through exercises like pranayama and mantra which helps to settle the heart as well hod the emotions and to the right we have netzach meaning victory the mind because when you conquer the mind you become a buddha a victorious one a master above that though we have a more rarefied form of energy and perception, known as tifereth, which means beauty. This is willpower. Willpower is simply the, the ability to act. But for most of us, this will is conditioned to thought, metzach, to emotions, hod, to energy or sensations in the body, relating to yesod and malkut. Our will, which is the very center of this glyph, is the very focal point of all action in our very being. So this is an image of who we are psychologically. And at the very center, we have willpower. Because it is through will is how we can access the higher levels of being or we can condition ourselves further. So when you learn to concentrate, you're using your will to control thought, feeling, impulse, and the body. Notice that when we practice meditation or we prepare ourselves, 
We relax the body. We also relax our energies. We have to relax our heart, relax our mind. And then we concentrate on one thing. So we have the five lower sephiroth represented in our discipline. If we want to access the higher levels of being, we have to use our willpower. And willpower is concentration. Are you able to focus on one thing without thinking or feeling or being distracted by the body is the question. Because when your mind is still, your emotions are calm, your energies are, are balanced, willpower becomes empowered and allows you to experience the higher sephiroth, known as giburah, justice, of which we spoke extensively in our previous lecture. This is buddhi in Sanskrit, the divine consciousness. To the right we have chesed, meaning mercy, our inner God, our spirit, which in Hebrew is el, the being. And above that we have the, the trinity of Christianity, keter, chokmah, binah, crown, wisdom, intelligence, which is the highest form of energy in the cosmos, represented by the trinity among the Christians, as Osiris, Isis, and Oros amongst the Egyptians. Votan, Baldur, Thor, amongst the Nordics. You have the Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya in Buddhism. Our Divine Mother is an, the feminine aspect of Bina, intelligence. She is Shakti, the wife of Shiva, the Holy Spirit, which is a force, not a person. That energy is within our body. We have the, the energies of the Father, in the brain, Keter. We have the energies of Christ, the Son, Oros, in the heart. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit in sex, the sexual organs. So that power which can give life to a child, if it's used well and harnessed, can give birth to the soul. And those are very rarefied levels of consciousness which we can access in meditation if we're concentrated. Because if our, if our will is not empowered, is not guided by the spirit and by our consciousness, if we're distracted by our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations, we can pray all we want, but we're not going to get the answers we want. Because the mind has to be calm, the body has to be calm. The lower sephiroth has to be in control, to be still. We have a quote from Hamlet in which Claudius is confessing his crime to himself for having murdered his brother, which is a symbol of a masonry and many other traditions of the death of the divine potential within us. Claudius is a representation of the ego. And he says something very profound in relation to this lecture that's relevant to state. My words fly up to heaven, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. So Shakespeare was an esotericist, was a meditator. Your words can fly up to heaven. You can be asking and asking for insight. If your concentration is down in your body, if you're moving your body, being agitated, if you're identified with thought or feeling, it means that those words will never reach the divine. Words without thoughts, without concentration, never reach the destination. Or better said, we never get the insights we want because the mind is in chaos. And this is why uh, Prophet Muhammad stated that an hour of contemplation is better than a year of prayer. Meaning, an hour of meditation, of experiencing your inner God, is better than going to mosque for a year and praying salat 
five times a day, mechanically. So people can do that if they like. But if it's mechanical, it doesn't serve any purpose. Which brings into mind a saying by a Sufi master by the name of Bayezid Bastami, who talked about the real esoteric meaning of prayer. Muslims, when they pray, they pray towards the East, towards the, the Kaaba, which in alchemical or Kabbalistic teachings relate to the stone of the Freemasons. That stone, the Kaaba, is a symbol of the energies of the Asad, the foundations of our spiritual temple. Notice that this sphere is at the very base of the whole tree of life and is at the very bottom. It's the foundation. How we use this energy, the creative energies of our body, determines our spiritual life. So people in the Muslim tradition have lost the meaning of this significance. They pray towards this stone in the Middle East, but ignore that they have the stone in their own body. They don't use their energies consciously. So you can pray all you want to the, the East, towards Mecca. But the Sufi master, Bayezid Bastami, pointed out something very beautiful. He says, when you are separate from the Kaaba, it is all right to turn toward it. But those who are in it can turn, any, turn toward any direction they wish. Meaning, if you're actively using your energies wisely, you can access the whole tree of life. You go to any direction. Because notice that there are ten spheres, ten sephirop. These are the ten directions of Buddhism mentioned by the tantric scriptures. Ten modalities of energy. So if you learn to use that energy in yourself, you don't need to pray towards a stone. You can if it brings you reverence. But if you pray, be conscious of what you do. Because those who don't learn to work with that energy can't access the higher aspects of the tree of life, the consciousness. So one must be even balanced in order to perform Raja Yoga as well as Bhakti Yoga. As we've been stating, one must learn to calm the mind and to learn to be compassionate in all circumstances. He who hates no creature, who is friendly and compassionate to all, who is free from attachment and egoism, balanced in pleasure and pain, and forgiving, ever content, steady in meditation, possessed a firm conviction from having internal experiences, self-controlled with the mind and consciousness, buddhi, dedicated to me, he, my devotee, is dear to me. He by whom the world is not agitated and who cannot be agitated by the world and who is freed from joy, envy, or better said, egotistical joy, evil pleasures, envy, fear, and anxiety, he is dear to me. So, to not be agitated by the world, neither to agitate the world. Like the Christian saying, be of the world, but not of it. Interact with others. Like, as the Buddhists teach, a butterfly going from flower to flower, extracting the pollen and knowledge and insight one needs, transforming those situations and leaving without harming the flower itself, the petals. He who is free from wants, who is not constantly occupied with one's bills or trying to sustain oneself in this life, pure, expert, unconcerned, meaning an expert in meditation, unconcerned with, it states in the Gospels, 
See the lilies of the field and the birds of the sky, how they toil not nor spin. Why worry about what raiment you shall have for yourself? What money, what sustenance? Because your inner divinity knows you need these things. So therefore have faith in your inner God to give you what you need so long as we do our part. So to be free from wants, pure, expert in meditation, unconcerned, untroubled, renouncing all undertakings or commencements, meaning to not act egotistically in any circumstance. He who is thus devoted to me is dear to me. And this has to do with the path of balance, not being identified. Even with those qualities we think are good, psychologically speaking, we have many bad egos, as we've been talking about. There are also many good egos, senses of self that know how to do good, like to give money or to be a member of some church or mosque or majid or whatnot. But even the ego, the sense of self that thinks it does good, is subjective. Consciousness is something much more transcendental or profound. So he who neither rejoices nor hates nor grieves nor desires, renouncing good and evil as philosophical concepts, but learning to act in the present moment consciously, and who is full of devotion is dear to me. He who is the same to foe and friend and in honor and dishonor, who is the same in cold and heat and in pleasure and pain, who is free from attachment, identification, Desire. He to whom censure and praise are equal, who is silent in the mind, content with anything, even homeless, meaning not identified with having a house or a home or whatnot, but being uh, not attached to the world, even if one has a house or whatnot. Of a steady mind and full of devotion, that man is dear to me, that meditator is dear to me. They verily who follow this immortal dharma, this law or doctrine as described above, endowed with faith, conscious experience, regarding me as their supreme goal. They, the devotees, are exceedingly dear to me. Let us talk about the teachings of the Divine Mother we've been discussing. We have what's called three factors in order to achieve success in meditation and the spiritual path itself. We have the birth of, path of birth, the path of death, and the path of sacrifice. Birth relates to chastity, which does not mean sexual abstention, but by learning to harness the energies of sexuality, the body, the asod, the vital forces, one learns to take that energy and to empower one's meditation. Because that energy which can create a child if we conserve that force and transform it, can awaken the soul in its full capacity. We also have what's called the death of desire, sanctity, which is what we've been discussing in the path of judgment. To comprehend the sources of the ego, the def- our defects, and to eliminate them, to annihilate them. So that by breaking those shells, we free consciousness, like the genie from Aladdin's lamp, so that the soul can perform miracles, experiences, knowledge, powers in ourselves. And sacrifice, to have charity, doesn't mean to just give money to the poor or whatnot. It can involve that. But you also sacrifice for others when you learn to perform your job with consciousness, with love, 
so that we don't harm others. So these three factors we'll be talking more in depth in future courses. But these three we find are synonymous, different aspects of one thing. If you want to awaken consciousness, we have to learn to use energy to give birth to the soul. We have to learn to comprehend the sources of the ego, to die in those defects, and learn to serve others. So the stages of comprehension, which are fed by those three factors, involve the following. We discussed in our previous lecture, the light of consciousness, the path of discovery. And the path of conscious judgment, we talked about the second step, judgment. In this lecture, we're talking about execution, prayer. So we have in this image the Divine Mother slaying a demon. She is the power of the kundalini that can eliminate our conditions of mind, our defects, our egos, which she does through the creative energies of sexuality, harnessed within a matrimony or between man and woman, who can learn to use those energies as a couple to transform the mind. So we find many interesting symbols in this in her hands. And the fact that she has multiple hands, uh, represented by Durga, riding a, uh, a lion, represents her uh, ability, her omniscience, to act in all circumstances of life without conditions, to act in multiple ways. So with discovery, we find our defects. We observe ourselves moment by moment. We save energy. We serve others. We comprehend our faults in meditation through judgment. And after we have comprehended our defects, we learn to execute them. Or better said, the Divine Mother, the Divine Feminine, executes them through prayer. So we've been discussing how prayer is to speak with the divinity, with the divine, face to face. The Divine Mother is the root energy at the base of her spine, but also in our heart. She is the energy that can liberate the soul. So we work with her daily in our Gnostic studies in order to remove the obscurations of the mind, to comprehend ourselves, but also to invoke that divine power, to destroy the shells of the ego. So again, we see here riding a lion, which is very symbolic. That lion is a symbol of the lion of Judah amongst the Christians, Judea, or yod Hey vav dalet Hey, which has the four sacred letters of the name of God, yod Hey vav Hey Jehovah. As we talked about in our previous lectures, Yah, or yod Hey is the Father. Hey, or Chava, uh, Hey, Vav, Hey, we can also say is Chava, Eve, the Divine Feminine, male, female, man, woman, because we have a Divine Father above and a Divine Mother above within our consciousness. So Yod Chava, Jehovah, is the power of male, female. And Chava, or Adam, Eve, we can say. And Yah, Chava, is precisely the power of the Divine Feminine, or Chava, hidden within Durga, who is the power that can slay any ego, any defect, when we learn to pray to her consciously. Samayal and Vior states in Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, prayer in the psychological work is fundamental for the dissolution of the I, the ego, the myself. We need a power superior to the mind if indeed we want to disintegrate this or that I. 
whether it be pride, an ego of vanity, of fear, of lust. The mind by itself can never disintegrate any I. This is indisputable and irrefutable. To pray is to talk with God. We must appeal to God the mother in the depths of our heart if we truly want to disintegrate eyes, egos, selves, conditions of mind. The one who does not love his or her mother, the ungrateful child, will fail in the work upon himself. Meaning those who forget after they have uh, begun working on their mind to continue working with her. <coughs> so again, that experience comes to my mind where she told me, where are you? I can't find you on this radar. So one must not forget one's divine mother when you begin this work. She's the power that can liberate the consciousness from the ego, the self. So she is the Virgin Mary, Miriam. As I said, the word Miriam means to raise. And what else is that power that can raise us to the heights of the heavens except the Kundalini in the spine? She is the power of Miriam or Maim, which in Hebrew means water. You have Mem, repeated twice, the letter M in Hebrew, and the letter R, Miriam. You have the word Maim, which means water, and the letter Rosh means head. So those waters of the creative energy are in your base of your spine, in your sexual organs, which if you raise through certain practices up the spine to the mind, you can eliminate the intellect, produce the halo of the saints. So she is the power that can raise us from suffering up the line of being. Some island VR provides some advice about this. Make yourselves introversive. Direct your prayer within. Seeking within your interior, your divine lady. Thus, with sincere supplications, you shall be able to talk to her. Beg her to disintegrate the eye that you have previously observed and judged. Comprehension and the discernment are fundamental. Meaning, you have to see your egos in action. See what arose in your mind, in your heart, in your body at a certain instance of the day. Be specific. Be understanding of what defect you saw in action in each moment of your day. To discern is precisely the capacity to see, to discriminate, to understand. Nonetheless, something more is necessary if indeed what we want is to disintegrate the myself, the ego, the I. The mind could give itself the luxury of labeling any defect, passing it from one department to the other, exhibiting it, hiding it, etc. However, the mind can never fundamentally alter the defect. A special power superior to the mind is necessary, a fiery power that is capable of reducing any defect to ashes. Stella Maris, our Divine Mother, has that power. She is able to pulverize any psychological defect. Stella Maris is Virgin of the Sea, the waters. And those waters are precisely your energies in your body. And those waters, if we learn to control them through breathing exercises, mantras, circulate those forces up the spine and to awaken faculties of the consciousness in their full potential. So she is the power that can liberate the soul. And she's also represented in the Tarot. We've been giving a course on the 22 Arcana of the Tarot. And in the 11th Arcanum, which will be our next lecture, 
we find a, a virgin holding open the jaws of a lion. It's interesting that in these images of the Tarot, we find many symbols that relate to every religion. Notice that Durga rides upon a lion, because that lion is the energy of Christ, Jehovah, whom we work with and dominate through the power of the Divine Feminine. So that lion, instead of attacking her, is placid, is tranquil. She opens the jaws of the lion, meaning she controls those forces completely in us when we learn to meditate. The transcendental axiom or statement of this arcanum, this law, this teaching, because the word arcanum means law, is the following. Joyful in hope, suffering in tribulation, be thou constant in thy prayer. So as you're working in self-observation of your defects, learn to pray to your inner goddess. Ask for help, for insight. Ask her to hope you control the jaws of the lion, which is your energies, because sometimes we have energy that wants to act in ways that we can't control. And so we have to appeal to her deeply to guide us. We won't talk about this arcanum in depth because, today because we're giving a whole course on this. And this will be our next lecture. Some ways that you can learn to develop bhakti yoga in yourself are through the following ways. Stipulated by Swami Shivananda in his book, Easy Steps to Yoga. We have sravana, hearing the lila of God. To hear the lila of God means you develop devotion by hearing the teachings, by reading scripture, and understanding its meaning. How does it apply to your life practically? So you can read any scripture that you have, have an affinity for and meditate on its meaning. How does it apply to certain circumstances in your life? Otherwise, it's just theory. You may read the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Old Testament. Find scriptures that are explained that are meaningful to you. That's a form of devotion. We read scriptures that inspire us, that teach us something profoundly about ourselves. We have Kirtana singing his praise. Kirtan is uh, very common in um, schools of yoga where they have small concerts and they play many traditional Hindu songs. But there's also many other forms of singing of prayer. Like amongst the Christians, you have Cistercian monks and many other, uh, even classical music. We have choral pieces, which are very divine, profound, that one can learn to be a part of, that inspires you. Smarana, remembering his name. This typically has to do with re reciting a mantra. So you can learn to remember your inner divinity by reciting a prayer or a mantra, moment by moment, mentally. You know, Ramyo, you can pronounce mentally in your mind. And in your mind, recite japa, prayer. Repeat that mantra. Whatever mantra you resonate with that gives you power in your consciousness. Padasavana, worshipping his lotus feet. Literally means service to the feet. It has many um, beautiful meanings that are explained in the Judeo-Christian Bible by Jesus anointing the feet of his disciples before his uh, passion. To wash one's feet with ointment, with oil, is a symbol. Very profound. And to have dreams of washing one's feet, which are filled with mud, 
with pure water. It's a symbol of removing the impurities in the mind. Because how you walk in your daily life is how you walk spiritually. You can't separate the two. Most people think that life in mosque and life at work are separate. They don't see the connection. But the truth is that your work is your religion. How you behave psychologically is your, is your mysticism, your path. So to wash the feet in waters of purity is, to, is a very beautiful Christian symbol relating to baptism and transmutation as we've been explaining in our courses. In which you can find available explanations on our website. By worshiping his lotus feet is to purify the mind. Because when you purify your mind and your body by working with energy, you develop devotion. The heart becomes inflamed, inspired. Archana is offerings. This is very well traditionally understood as providing flowers or some kind of holy relics upon an altar. But a real offering is when you, as a consciousness, decide to restrain from certain habits which are negative, certain defects that you observed. You make an offering to the, your divine being. You say, I will renounce this ego that I have in me and offer myself with sacrifice to receive those benefits. And then, of course, divinity always responds because when you work on the ego, you develop light. Eliminate the darkness, you develop light. Bandana, prostration, can mean uh, many forms of prayer, not only in Hinduism, but also Buddhism and Islam. And to prostrate is to, again, to surrender oneself, psychologically speaking. So many traditions, they involve prayers and prostrations, which we do too in this tradition as well. Certain prayers we do on our knees or certain exercises we do on our knees as a form of reverence for the divine. Dasya is service. As we've explained in uh, very uh, detail today, relating to karma yoga. What are ways that you can help other human beings to benefit? doesn't mean by having to give this type of knowledge, but instead refers to how we possess certain skills that can benefit other people. So we have qualities that are intrinsic to our dispositions and which we have to offer. So we have to find what is it we're good at and that we can really give to others to be a benefit. And we, we, we do it with love. We're performing service, yoga, union, karma, karma yoga. And therefore we receive certain benefits, uh, blessings from divinity. Because in order to receive help, we have to give help according to our level. Sakya, friendship, has to do with associating with people who are like-minded, meaning people who are more elevated or spiritual. Because obviously sometimes we may be associated with certain people who are maybe drunkards or drug addicts or whatnot, and they, uh, you know, like attracts like, so to speak. If you want to be around better vibrations, you can make friends with people or associate with people who help inspire your spirituality. It's always good. And that way, when you're very confident about your level of being, you can help those who are less fortunate, of course. And then lastly, Atmanivedana, complete self-surrender, which has to do with when you recognize your ego and you don't give it what it wants, but surrender your consciousness to your inner God. Is a psychological state of being. To surrender one's mind, one's heart, one's body for one's divinity. So 
Swami Shivananda concludes this, we're going to conclude this lecture with the following quote, for he, Swami Shivananda states, study the Gita, Ramayana, and Bhagavata, have satsanga, meaning spiritual meetings, visit holy places, tirtha yatra, do japa, mantra recitation, meditate, sing his name. You can develop bhakti and have his darsana, his yoga discipline, by following these steps. Any questions? With, uh, with negative emotions especially, you can step aside for a minute or five or one not if you have a break. Sit, relax, breathe. Inhale for six seconds, hold your breath for six seconds, exhale for six seconds. And then when your mind is calm, if you have even more time, do pranayama. Do the transmutation of your energies by working with your breath and circulating that force because that energy will help calm you especially when you get overwhelmed by certain egos or defects and you feel like you're going to lose control, like you're, you're very upset with someone or someone challenges you or does something very negative, it can be very difficult to transform that. So instead, in order to avoid exacerbating the situation, step back for five minutes, say, all right, I need to take a break real quick, if you can. Somewhere isolated, you just breathe. Focus on your breath. Yeah, and most people, they have no idea because, you know, people who don't self-observe are not going to discover that. But now that you're seeing it, now you're seeing this is my daily state. As we talked about in the lecture, light of consciousness, you have to look within to develop light. But of course, when you develop that light, the darkness wants to swallow that light. So it becomes a very painful circumstance. Ways that you can deal with it, transmute more when you get home, work with your energies. And transmutation is an exercise in which you take the energies of your body and circulate them, such as through breathing exercises or mantras. You transmute the, or transform the substance of your bodily energies into energy or force. And that will help calm you. Personally, if I'm at work and I'm dealing with, you know, I have some, as I mentioned previously, I have some very difficult clients that I work with. So what I do is if I've been overwhelmed at times, at my break, I do a mantra in my mind. Even out loud. I'll be doing other things in my, my office or my, my room. And I'll be doing a mantra. Klim Krishnaya Govindaya Gopijana Vallabhaya Swaha So that mantra we have on uh, the website NasikTeachings.org You can look under the videos of how to pronounce that. It's a mantra in order to invoke Christ. To remove and reject negativity. Not only just from outside but from within. 
So I found that if I'm getting angry, if I was, if I was getting angry at certain people, I'd step back and when I had my break, do this mantra. Totally changes everything. It's um, in the Perfect Matrimony and the chapter about the Gnostic pentagram. But it's very powerful. You're invoking Klim, Christ, Krishnaya, the Lord, Krishna, Govindaya, which is uh, Govinda relates to, uh, means cow, cowherd, I believe, the shepherd or the one who leads the souls of the cows, a symbol of a certain disciples, like sheep in the Bible, to light. Govindaya, Gobijana, Balabaya, Swaha. That light enters into you and you can form the pentagram, which is the five-pointed star, which is when upright, rejects negative forces. And not only just to reject people outside of you who are negative, but you know, more importantly, mentally, your internal states. Yes, sir? What is the meaning in Hamza? Yeah, Hamza is a mantra for transmutation. Another exercise of working with the sexual energy, which when you conserve it, you sit in a comfortable place, you imagine by closing your eyes, your spinal column. We have the famous caduceus of mercury amongst the symbol of medicine, which represents how certain channels of energy rise from either the testicles or the ovaries up the spine in the form of two snakes until reaching the head. In the middle, you find two wings that open up. It's a symbol of how by working with that energy and circulating it, you develop the wings of spirituality. And with hamsa, you first close your, mind, close your eyes, pray to your Divine Mother, my Goddess, Help me to work with this energy in me because you are that energy. Help me to awaken you within my spine and to calm my mind. Circulate these forces in me. And then you breathe, inhale through your nostrils. Imagine the energy is rising like light up those two energetic channels of the spine, which are called in Hinduism by the name of Ida Pingala, masculine feminine energy. Or in Taoism, yin and yang. Or in Hebrew, old and old. Adam, Eve, male, female, symbol of those forces. Inhale, when, you pronounce, when you're inhaling, you imagine these energies rising up the spine to your brain, you pronounce mentally the mantra, you don't verbalize it, you make it mental. And you prolong the inhalation and, the, and that mantra, hum, in order to send the energies from your sexual organs to your brain. And that hum becomes saturating with light as light saturates the mind, fills the chalice of the brain. And then as you are about to exhale, imagine that energy descending to the third eye through the, you could say, nadis or energetic channels of the face down into the heart. And then you pronounce externally the mantra, hum is prolonged. We say it's solar creative. That energy rises, is retained, prolonged, because you want to force the energies to circulate up to the mind or send it in that direction. So you prolong hum much profoundly. And then as some island of your states, you send that energy to the heart with a very relaxed way. Sa. Doesn't have to be prolonged. I know some, I've heard some people would pronounce sa very, uh, very prolonged, like a sa. But you know, personally, I don't see that in the instructions. Instead, sa should be very 
short, relaxed. Hum should be more prolonged because you're teaching your, energy, your body to circulate those energies inward and upward to the spine rather than expelling them outward, as you know. Because most people, that energy is not controlled. It goes out. People don't know how to conserve that energy. But remember that she is Miriam. She is the waters of your sexuality, which when you conserve, she rises up your spine to your head. Rosh. Miriam. And mem, in, it means water in Hebrew. Mem is the waters of your brain. And also mem is the waters of your sexual organs. And you connect the two by working with mantra. Hamsa is one way you can do that. To work with her. And that's a very profound form of prayer. When you work with that energy daily. Because that way she will really give you a lot of strength and insight. Because without energy we have no light. Without fire there's no light. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.